The reading this morning is from the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke chapter 18 beginning at the 15th verse. Glory to you Lord Jesus Christ. People were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them and when the disciples saw it they sternly ordered them not to do it but Jesus called for them and said let the little children come to me and do not stop them for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs truly I tell you whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it a certain ruler asked him good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I have kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? He replied, What is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Then Peter said, Look, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Loving God, may my words make sense because they are inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're probably familiar with the two main images in the reading that Bruno read for us this morning. Even if you've never been to church before, there's a good chance that you have seen this image before of Jesus swarmed by hordes of smiling children. And you've possibly come across that crazy image of a camel trying to fit through the eye of a needle. If you've heard this passage before, you might think to yourself that you've got the gist of it already. Because you sang Jesus Loves the Little Children in Sunday School just like I did. 
And you know that those rich people, well, you know that they're bad news. Of course, by rich, you mean those who are much richer than us. You know, Scrooge McDuck type rich. But if you want to hear and feel and respond like those who witnessed this as it happened, or those who heard it not long after Luke set down his orderly account, and well before the westernisation and Christianisation of our culture, then we have to rethink everything. Because maybe, just maybe, we've got it all wrong. On Tuesday next week, at 2pm Queensland time, our nation will stop for the Melbourne Cup. I have a group of schoolmates who, in our uni years, liked a beer and a punt. I went along, of course, to make sure that they didn't get in too much trouble. I've got another mate from school. Interestingly, he doesn't like a beer and a punt because uh, his dad's a horse trainer. Um, and so I've learned over the years a little bit about horse racing, enough to know that the Melbourne Cup is probably the hardest race all year to pick a winner. On average, every Australian will spend $180 on the Melbourne Cup, about half of it on entertainment, fashion and dining, the other half on gambling. It's expected that more than $220 million will be wagered on the Melbourne Cup this year. No wonder people like Tim Costello keep challenging Australians about our problems with gambling. The Melbourne Cup itself is a big field with some really, really good horses, many from overseas, some who've never raced in Australian conditions, which makes it trickier to pick. There's usually about half a dozen favourites. And the odds for those favourites winning are pretty good. So you could almost triple or quadruple your wager if a favourite was to win. But on that one day a year, I hear lots of people hoping for something different. They want that big win. So rather than looking at the favourites, I hear lots of people trying to pick an outsider. And the best way to pick an outsider, if you ask my wife, is to look at the colour that the jockey is wearing. If that doesn't work, the name is a much better option. In fact, she's got a much better track record at the Melbourne Cup than I do. In the hope that we're all going to get lucky. But in the Melbourne Cup, sometimes outsiders actually win. Many of us can afford a small flutter once a year. And so we're not too concerned about risking a small amount with the possibility of living that dream of that one big win from an outsider. But gambling does become a problem for many when that dopamine hit becomes addictive, when the amounts are too large that they risk financial stability, relationships and your personal integrity. So please don't think that by using this illustration this morning that I'm condoning all that's going on and around this 
and I don't understand the dark side of the industry where many lives are regularly destroyed and there is some questionable treatment with the animals as well. But what I want to dig into this morning is this idea of the outsider and the sure thing. Once a year, looking for an outsider seems okay for most of us. But no rational thinking Australia, Australian would bet the farm on an outsider. Can you imagine emptying your bank accounts, cashing in your super, selling your house and all your possessions, picking up a form guide, scrolling through until you find a horse that has the biggest odds and putting all your money on that one horse? That would be craziness. We don't want to risk our financial security. So we put our money in a bank. We buy property. We have super funds. We might put all our savings in fixed-term deposits or carefully managed funds or shares in blue-chip stocks or cryptocurrency. Maybe not cryptocurrency. But I might be a qualified accountant still, but I'm not licensed to give financial advice, so I'm going to stop the analogy there. But what I want you to think about as we now move back to our gospel reading is that the children in this story are the rank outsiders. While this certain ruler is the surest thing in Melbourne Cup history. Who, if you're interested, was Farlap in 1930. Jesus' interaction with Children, in this way, is also told in Matthew and Mark's gospel. But Luke has extra attention to detail. And so he's able to add some subtle additional information which helps us to understand how profound Jesus' statements about the kingdom and to whom the kingdom belongs really are. In Jesus' time, and this is hard for us to accept, a child was not seen in the same way that a child is seen today. They had no rights and very little value. It wasn't until they reached an age where they could work or breed that they became of value. And many didn't reach that age. Have you ever wondered why Jewish people make such a big deal out of bar mitzvahs? I think this is one of those reasons, to celebrate that a child now has worth. Until then, they were amongst the most vulnerable in their community. And this might seem really cruel to us with our westernised view. But it really made me wonder and tried to put myself in that situation. And I wondered whether it was almost like a self-protection mechanism for parents in those times. Maybe they were thinking that if I don't invest too much emotionally, socially or financially until they come of age, then maybe if they don't come of age and they die, then I won't hurt so much. All around them in Greco-Roman culture, so this is not just a Jewish thing, in Greco-Roman culture, it was not unusual for a child who was born with a disability or with a chronic illness, or not 
the gender that the parents expected or wanted, for that child to be abandoned on a rubbish heap, left to die. And as I was considering this, it helped me understand part of this passage that I was really struggling with for a long time, and that is, why are the disciples telling their children to go away? Well, I think that they're part of the culture in which they lived. They want Jesus to worry about the ones that are of more value and worth, the ones that can make a difference. The ones that were of higher value got the most attention in the ancient Near East. And in a way, I think that's pretty much the same today, if we're honest. Luke uses a different word than Matthew and Mark. If you look at most Bibles in Matthew and Mark, uh, in, in the section that's similar to this one, it says little children. But in our Bible that we, um, we heard today, uh, the word that's translated in Greek is infants. So Luke wants us to understand that these children are really, really young. Not eight and nine-year-olds, but infants, solely reliant on the care and attention of a parent for survival. And Luke gives us more specific information by revealing what these people wanted from Jesus They wanted Jesus to touch these babies. And in Luke's gospel, when Jesus touches somebody, what happens? They're healed. So, putting all the pieces together, what do you get? Those children that are coming to Jesus that the disciples are wanting to send away, they are sick babies. That's a pretty good educated guess for us in 2022. Not smiling, healthy primary school children like our pictures sometimes tell us about this scene, but really sick babies. They were the ones least likely to make it. They were the outsiders. But rumours of Jesus had begun to spread And in these parents, there was a glimmer of hope. What if there was an outside chance for my child? Now let's flip over to the other side of this passage and have a look at this certain ruler. What we're looking at is that culture's version of the surest thing. Let's add it up. He's a male. He's a Torah-observing, rule-following Jew. He's got status, influence, and power, and he's also rich. All of these things added together for somebody to look at him and say, wow, he's blessed. He's got it all worked out. God is on his side. I don't know uh, what you do when you're reading the Bible, but one of the things that I like to do as I'm reflecting on Scripture, if I've given myself a little bit of time to think about the passage, is I often try and imagine the facial expressions and the body language and the backstories 
and the motivations of the people in the stories that we don't get just from reading the words alone. So I tried to do that this time with this certain ruler. And it led me to wonder if the question that he asks Jesus of what must I do, he's asking with the answer already in his mind. You see, when you think about it, this is a person who is used to attention. He's around others who would normally look up to him and aspire to be him. Would he do that if he was genuinely unsure of his eternal future? I suspect it's more likely that he's read his own press and he's pretty confident that he's on the right side of God's ledger. So he says to Jesus, hey, check me out. Am I doing okay? Expecting the answer that he's received his entire life. You're so blessed. You're the sure thing. You just keep doing what you're doing and you'll be sweet. If he was genuinely concerned about his eternal future, I suspect he would have found a way to grab Jesus in a quiet, private moment where he wouldn't be embarrassed to ask the question. Kingdom economics is different to the world's economics. Kingdom economics is the first will be last and the last will be first. It's humbling yourself and drawing attention away from yourself and onto others. It's being where we find Jesus most of the time with the outsiders, the last, the least, the lost, the widows, the orphans, the outcasts. When we see Jesus with the privileged and the powerful, what's he usually doing? Criticizing them, holding them to account. Using first century Jewish economics, This certain ruler is the sure thing. These sick babies, they're not worth worrying about. But in kingdom economics, they are the most vulnerable. And the most vulnerable matter the most. We need to rethink everything. One of the marks of the early church in those first few hundred years. One of the things that got the attention of the communities around them and that, I think, was the catalyst to their extraordinary growth. And if we're asking ourselves in 2022 why our churches aren't growing, I think we can take a little bit of note of what the early church did. You see that they went to those rubbish heaps where all those babies were abandoned and they rescued them. And they didn't take them to institutions or orphanages they brought them into their own homes and they raised them as their own. Now, that in and of itself would have grown their numbers, but it was the witness to the community that made the difference. This radical kingdom economics convicted and challenged those around them. And some, not all of them, but some wanted to know more. And some believed because of what they did and how they lived. 
But what of that certain ruler? What happened to him? What of this scenario of trying to get the camel through the eye of the needle? Well, the interesting thing about kingdom economics is that no one's abandoned, not even the wealthy. We're actually not told what happens in the end with this ruler. Maybe he went away and spent some time in deep reflection, challenged by what he'd seen and heard. And he changed. And he did end up following Jesus. Maybe. But what kingdom economics does and what it did to him in his sadness was challenge him to rethink everything. to allow ourselves to be criticised like Jesus criticised the privileged and the religious elite of his time. I don't know if you've realised, but you're the privileged and the religious elite of our time. One of the most confronting ways to read the Bible is to look at all the criticisms that Jesus levels and put yourself those positions but that's your homework the biggest challenge comes because in their desire to have the attention poured on themselves to see themselves as blessed or important what they had done was overlook an obvious need a real need We might not think of ourselves as wealthy by any means, but if we look at global economics, every Australian is way more wealthy on average than other parts of our globe. We are just as privileged as this ruler was privileged. And so the big question for us as it was for him is how do we use our privilege Do we use it to draw more attention to ourselves, to advance our own self-interest? Or do we use our privilege to benefit others? The final verses of this passage often don't get the attention that the little children and the certain ruler and the camel in the eye of the needle do normally get. I actually think those last few verses where Peter asks the question, what about us, Jesus? I think they're worth looking at. Our culture's economy says we win if we get more than we give. We come out ahead. Isn't that what our world says? You invest a little bit, you get a bit more back, you win. But that's not kingdom economics. In kingdom economics, God is seeking after people who are willing to give more than they get in return. And that's how we use our privilege. And that's why Jesus takes the time to answer Peter's sincere question. This is one of the few times that Peter's question isn't stupid. He's sincerely, well, what about us, Jesus? We've left everything. Jesus sees his heart and the heart of those who've left everything and says, 
I can see that you've given more than you're getting at the moment. But it will be okay. You'll get far more. And that is the irony of it all, isn't it? If our intention is to give more than we get, we always get much more than we expect. It's usually not in financial terms. But we are rewarded with the richness of the satisfaction that we are serving others. That we do have riches in heaven, but even here in our earthly lives, even though that shouldn't be our motivation, when we are coming alongside another and giving of ourselves, the rewards that we get in seeing how they respond are immeasurable. That's kingdom economics. We are called to be people who recognise our privilege and to seek to give more than we get. And that should impact every part of our life. We don't gather together on a Sunday to worship to get a buzz out of it. We worship to give ourselves to God, to be fed, to grow so that we can give out more. We don't pray so we get what we want. We pray for others who are in need. We don't serve so that we get rewarded and noticed. We serve to lift up others. That's the sort of stuff that gets camels through the eyes of needles. That's kingdom economics. And I don't know about you, but I think it's worth the punt. Loving God, as we reflect on what is going to happen around us over the next week and the desire for quick wins, help us to be aware of the long game that is kingdom economics and your call to us to recognize the gifts that you've so generously given us, the grace that is so abundantly poured upon us, grace enough for us to share with each other. Help us to be good stewards of kingdom economics. Help us to live lives that are worthy of somebody around us saying, wow, I wonder why they do that. and Why are they so different? Help us to love generously and ask ourselves, who is the outsider in my life, in my community, and in my world? How might I give to them? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me and the worship team as we continue to sing together?